Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 404, The Coronation of Queen Matilda. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Margaret, Michael, and Donald for signing up already. Githa and her supporters had fled into the Severn Estuary. And that was the final nail in the coffin of the Exeter Rebellion. With no help coming, they were forced to negotiate a peace. But this wasn't exactly a victory for William. He'd been on the throne for scarcely over a year, and he'd already seen three separate rebellions. And this wasn't exactly an isolated issue either. The entire kingdom was kicking off with mysterious fires, even more mysterious assassinations out in the woods. And then there was whatever that unspoken bit of business was in Cornwall that William felt the need to deal with before returning to Winchester. England was a tinderbox, and more than a few matches had already been lit. Given the gravity of the situation, William deciding to return to England to deal with the chaos made a lot of sense. But there was one issue with returning to England. Namely, the company that he brought back with him. You might remember that when William went home to Normandy, he took hostages along with him. The creme de la creme of English society, or at least the creme of whatever was still left alive after the conquest. And that meant that English magnates, earls, thanes, and even an archbishop had gone to Normandy. And apparently, this entire gaggle of fancy geese traveled right alongside William wherever he went. And now that he was back in England, well, so were they. William was keeping his enemies close. I mean, that's why he took them hostage in the first place. Though Poitiers would like to point out that actually they were just honored guests. So honored, in fact, that they were required to take a long voyage of mandatory Norman fun. And I guess we should ignore that previous guests, like Walter of Mance, who had a claim on England, mysteriously died while experiencing this famed Norman hospitality. You see, the truth is, William wasn't a subtle guy, and so it's pretty obvious why he took the most powerful figures in England on a year-long mandatory Norman holiday. But now that he was back in England, so were they. Now, what's funny is that I've read a few historians who allege that the moment that English and Norman relations broke down was at Exeter. Which, if true, that would mean that these English hostages were totally fine being on a company team-building trip with a boss who might execute you if you don't smile enough. And then suddenly, when Exeter went off, they were all, Wait a minute, are we being colonized? Hey, Unferth, do you think William had ill intentions when he massacred entire English villages? This is starting to feel a little hostile to me. Now, these same historians also claim that the rebellion was the result of William being too timid and too mild as a ruler. And I honestly don't know how you could come to that conclusion unless you only read one account, Poitiers, who essentially argues that William was too beautiful and pure for this cruel world. 
And if you ever wonder why I chose to do this podcast in a chronological fashion, this is why. If you don't go in order, the cause and effects of events can get mixed up or even lost altogether. And the full record, such as it survives, makes it clear that William and his Normans were anything but mild. And this conquest was hostile and brutal right from the start. I mean, they burned down London to celebrate William's coronation. But even if William somehow believed that all these rebellions were coincidences and that the English actually loved him for his amazingly peaceful and loving attitude, I guarantee that when Edgar the Atheling fled his court, he probably knew something was up. Because yeah, when William came back to England, he brought Edgar the Atheling along with him. And pretty soon after the deposed king's feet touched English soil, he legged it. Which meant that there was a scion of the House of Wessex out there, somewhere. And these Englishmen were starting to act boldly. And they were getting bolder by the minute. What might have looked like minor, insignificant events was probably beginning to look more like a broad resistance against his rule. And now, with Edgar out in the field, it was pretty clear that this uprising went all the way up to the highest levels of English society. And as I said, considering that they obliquely mentioned that William had to enforce peace in Cornwall, and there was that mysterious fire out in Canterbury, and also those woodsmen conducting assassinations, well, this rebellion was already way more widespread than the Norman records care to recount. William's grip on the crown was looking pretty shaky in early 1068. And so, when he returned to Winchester, he sent for Matilda. William wanted his wife crowned, and he wanted it done quickly. And you might find that surprising. After all, He'd only been crowned himself for barely a year, and here he was in a rush to have a second coronation. Why? Well, if you watch any pop history documentaries, you might come across the idea that William was motivated to crown his wife because of his deep love for her. That this was a romantic gesture, because apparently nothing says romance like bringing your pregnant wife into a war zone. And actually, this idea that William was a romantic and sentimental person, at least towards his wife, is something that pops up in accounts quite a bit. And it all comes down to one piece of evidence. This theory is pinned entirely on the fact that to our knowledge, William never had any children out of wedlock. Yeah, that's it. Apparently, if you have no known bastards, your relationship is basically the opening scene of Up. And as you might have gathered, I find this romance angle a little unconvincing. Not spawning a load of bastards during your married years is certainly a bar to clear for a happy relationship, but it's a low one. And the truth is that while the record doesn't have any stories about bastards, it does have multiple stories about William violently attacking Matilda which would actually be in line with how he treated pretty much everyone else. Gomez Adams, this man was not. So if we can safely disregard the notion that William was romantically bringing his pregger's wife into a war zone, then why did he do it? Well, funnily enough, I suspect that at least part of the reason for it 
had to do with a child born out of wedlock. As you might have gathered from his nickname, William the Bastard was not born from a legitimized union. And being a bastard had been a problem for him politically for pretty much his entire life. Damn near any time he got anywhere near power in any form, there seemed to always be someone ready to take offense that his father never married his mother. And more often than not, it was dangerous and downright homicidal offense. And members know from the Members Only series on William the Bastard that this question stalked his ambitions at every step. And how you can still trace how the very culture which elevated William from a young age also placed him in mortal danger due to the simple fact that his parents weren't married. And it's a short step from there to see how one boy caught between privilege and dishonor was turned into a monster. It was an unfair and cruel situation that ultimately created an unfair and cruel person. And now, that person was king. Which meant that there were even more people looking to use the circumstances of his birth to undercut his power and maybe advance their own political goals a bit as well. Now, William had over 40 years of history with this problem, and as such, he'd found all manner of ways to counter the problem of his bastardy. There was violence, mysterious deaths, violence, war, violence, assassination, and if all that failed, there was always violence. As the old saying goes, when you're a hammer, everything looks like something you want to hit repeatedly on the head while screaming, I'm not a bastard, you're a bastard. But as you might imagine, that's a strategy that can only get you so far, which I suspect was why William really, really, potentially violently, wanted to shore up his political standing in France by marrying into a prestigious and powerful family. And so he proposed to Matilda, and according to Orderic, he did it in a very William way. Now, regardless of the details of the proposal and how he reacted to being rejected initially, the eventual marriage to Matilda was a political coup for William. It gave him a legitimacy on a level that he would never be able to claim with his fists. And that brings us back to England. Because William wasn't just a foreign conqueror. He was a foreign bastard conqueror. And given the time and culture, it would be hard to find someone who the English would have considered less legitimate as a leader than him. Maybe Liz Truss. And the fact that there were three significant rebellions, not to mention whatever was going on with Canterbury and Cornwall, that sure suggests that things weren't heading in the right direction for William. And he needed to right the ship quickly. And as luck would have it, Matilda wasn't just the legitimate daughter of Count Baldwin V of Flanders. She was also the granddaughter of King Robert II of France, the niece of Judith of Flanders, who was Tostig's wife, and finally, she was the descendant of King Charles the Bald. Matilda was the epitome of royal blood. And actually, some of that blood was English. In fact, she was the great-great-great-great-great-granddaughter of King Alfred the Great, which a lot of greats in there. But whatever, she was on the line, which was more than William could say. And so a coronation would be a great time to let everyone know about her lineage. 
And hopefully, having someone from that line would put a damper on all these English rebellions. And besides, typically, coronations are events that reinforce a monarch's right to rule. As events, they utilize every symbol and religious rite possible to demonstrate royal power and prestige. So it's not just a party. It's a ritual that says that society, and even God himself, acknowledges that this person is special. That the person who is wearing the crown is chosen for power. And beyond that, it's also a cultural touchstone. There's a significant chunk of folks who get really excited about coronations. The pomp, the history, the bling, it's all engineered to provoke a sense of majesty in the public. And it works on a lot of people. Now granted, if you want that sense of majesty and the air that you have the right to rule, it's probably a good idea to make sure your bros don't act all stupid and do something like loot and burn London. But if anything, that disastrous Christmas coronation made having another one, a better one and less bloody and terrifying one, all the more important. And finally, as I mentioned earlier, Matilda was pregnant. And according to the reconstruction of the birth order, Bates believes that this was her ninth child. Which, I mean, that would be dangerous even in our modern day. So there was probably a very real concern that Matilda might not survive this one. So suddenly, the rush to get Matilda across the channel and have her crowned, even though William was up to his eyeballs with rebellions, starts to make a lot of sense. We're not looking at the world's most sentimental romantic here. We're looking at someone who was throwing everything he could at the problem. Make special laws punishing the murder of Normans? Check. Appoint friendly bishops and tell them to preach that this was all God's will? Check. Papal absolution? Double check. Hold leaders hostage and prevent them from becoming rebels? Check. Build castles and militarize every conceivable population center? Check. Have armies in the field to put down any rebellions? Check. Give favorable terms to cities who disarm? Check. Erase any mention of the Godwinsons and claim that you are the continuation of the House of Wessex? Check. Bring over an actual descendant of the House of Wessex and have them crowned. We're working on it. Just give us a minute. When you step back and look at the first year and a half of William's reign, it's pretty clear that this is a kitchen sink approach to a crisis that threatened to engulf him and all his supporters. And while all these actions might have seemed like a good idea, and taking a kitchen sink approach might have seemed wise, it was probably creating as many problems as it was solving. For example, all those castles were expensive, and so were the soldiers and knights that were needed to garrison them. And that meant that the English people were getting a new load of heavy taxes, which were then immediately and publicly used to fund their own oppression. Beyond that, the people garrisoning these forts came from the same place and were of the same class and profession as the dudes who had burned Dover and burned and looted London for funsies. So while our records are scant, and we're not told precisely how Sir Ralph carried out his duty to protect and serve, we can probably make a few guesses, and we can bet that it was causing a fair amount of resentment among the public. And that's just one of the actions that they were taking to try and deal with this crisis. They all had their downsides, though. Even the symbols of William's reign, which were intended to display his power, 
probably created problems as well. For example, his seal presented him as the protector of the Normans. And it was a presentation that was reinforced when he was seizing all the English lands and wealth that he could get his hands on and then was giving it to his Norman friends and allies. So yeah, the Normans probably did feel pretty well protected. But the English? Not so much. And when they plucked up the courage to complain about the situation, they were ignored and the plundering continued. Every single one of William's early actions attempting to affirm his power was at best a double-edged sword. At the very least, he tended to be creating fear and desperation, and that alone would be making things worse. And so, as things were kind of hitting a fever pitch, William brought out the big guns. And in late spring, Matilda arrived in England. And she really would have been heavily pregnant at this point. So forcing her to waddle onto a ship so she could cross a channel and go to a kingdom that already had three rebellions last year. Well, that gives you a sense of how much pressure the Norman court must have been feeling. And on May 11th of 1068, Archbishop Eldred stood before Matilda to crown her. And thanks to the witness lists on the documents that were produced at this very occasion, we're able to reconstruct a partial guest list for this event. And we know that Matilda was joined by Guy of Amiens, the same guy who wrote the Carmen de Hastingay Prolio, which provided us with so much detail about the Battle of Hastings. And along with him were a slew of Norman elite. A bunch of people crossed the channel for this. Also in attendance were a variety of lesser English thanes and also a few high-profile English earls who had only recently returned to England following their mandatory Norman holiday. And so the English side of the aisle included Earl Edwin of Mercia, his brother Morcar, the former Earl of Northumbria, and their cousin, Earl Waltheof of the East Midlands, the guy who was pretty handy with a set of matches. And all of them were former hostages. Now, the crowning of a queen is an important event, and the guest list rose to the level of gravitas that you would expect. And the presence of the northern and midland earls also suggests that there was probably some degree of diplomacy going on here. Now that everyone was back in England, William may have been trying to ingratiate himself with the earls that he saw as a potential significant threat to his power. And they, in turn may have been attending in an effort to establish some sort of diplomatic relationship with their new conquering lord. However, it's also possible that these three earls were present for a much more different and specific reason. According to Orderick, William had promised Earl Edwin the hand of one of his daughters. And this seems plausible, considering that William's grip on the lands north of the Thames was tenuous at best at this point, and having the support of two Mercian brothers would go a long way towards stabilizing his very shaky reign. Plus, he had a lot of daughters. So the three of them might have been there for the simple reason that William was basically offering diplomatic bribes to try and secure allies. And if that's happening, well, might as well get in on it while the getting's good. Like I said, we're seeing a kitchen sink approach. But back to the coronation itself. This event like William's seals and other actions, was full of symbolism. And every symbol conveyed a very specific message to the assembled aristocrats. For example, the chants praising Matilda were written specifically for this occasion. And there's several interesting things about these chants. First, 
is that they used terminology that was alien to both the French and the English. They referred to William as the pacificus et magnus rex, which is Latin for a peaceful and great king. They also refer to him in Latin as serenissimus, the most serene. And we also see a specific Latin term for leader being applied to all the aristocratic attendees, regardless of whether they were English or French. Now, chants weren't unknown for coronations. Both the English and the French used chants in ceremonies. But each culture had different styles and terms that they used during these chants. And neither culture had chants like this. This was a very specific type of language that came from somewhere else, namely the Holy Roman Empire. With these chants, the new Norman aristocracy was deliberately aping the style of the Holy Roman Emperor Henry III. And thus, they were signaling that William's reign wasn't as a mere monarch. He had imperial ambitions. And it was a symbol completely in line with the other symbols of his early reign. But beyond the imperial messaging, there's another thing about these chants that's really interesting. They establish a religious hierarchy. At the top was the Pope. Right beneath him was William. And then beneath William was Matilda. So Matilda was proclaimed as the third most important figure in the political and religious structure. That's a big deal. And I suspect that it was an attempt at damage control. They're trying to establish that Matilda, who again was linked to the House of Wessex, wasn't just the king's wife, but rather she would hold an important position in the kingdom's hierarchy. And curiously, unlike many things with how William approached damage control, this one was more than simple lip service or branding. He seems to have actually meant it, because looking at later documents, Matilda held quite a lot of power in England. Even though she wasn't in England all that often, and instead resided in Normandy, she still appears in many documents, which suggests that she wasn't just the king's wife. She was involved in rule, and presumably, efforts were being made to acquire her signature even during the times when she was overseas. The 11th century Normans weren't exactly egalitarian people, but we see signs from the reign of William that suggests that within their cultural framework, William and Matilda operated in a kind of co-rule situation, perhaps similar to how Emma of Normandy operated with Canute or Edith with Edward. And considering that Emma was William's aunt, I suspect that he was aware of this cultural side door to power where outsiders could develop a degree of stability by overtly including known figures or dynasties. And perhaps he decided to take advantage of it. And so, on May 11th of 1068, England had a new queen. And she was one who was linked in quite an extended way to the House of Wessex. And I'm sure the hope was that this would soothe the English. But because this was William... What could have been a simple unifying event, one that this time was blessedly free of any looting and burning from William's knights, well, it got muddied, thanks to Norman greed. As I mentioned earlier, a coronation was an important political event. 
many important figures from England and Normandy had traveled to attend this ceremony. And as far as the English attendees were concerned, I suspect they weren't given much choice on the matter. But either way, this was a who's who of Norman and English society. And with so many highly ranked people attending, it was the perfect time to handle some outstanding legal matters and do the work of politics, which in this era largely meant real estate deals. There are two known charters coming out of this coronation, and both of them involve grants of land that were given to people from the continent. Now, these people had been present in England long enough to be in the court of King Edward the Confessor, but they were specifically continental figures. For example, one grant went to the Lotharingian bishop Giso of Wells. And funnily enough, he previously had his land stripped from him by King Harold Godwinson. But here at this coronation, he was getting his lands back. And I think we can all see what William was doing here, right? I mean, this is kind of the perfect PR grant. He can say that he was granting property to figures from King Edward's reign. So kind of bringing back the old reign. But he also was avoiding the shame of giving anything to the English and instead was giving it to continental allies. And in the case of Bishop Gizo, he was also taking another step towards erasing the legacy of Harold Godwinson. It seems pretty cut and dry to me. Though funnily, whoever was drafting up the charters, because obviously the king wasn't doing that, well, they were either not fully on board with the erasure of Harold, or they hadn't yet got the memo. Because Harold was referred to as Rex, king. And that was an omission that William's courtly documents typically avoided. And I'd be tempted to assume that this was an attempt at diplomacy as well, and an effort at avoiding further irritating the English, if it wasn't for everything else that William had been doing. I mean, even if titling Harold as king was an attempt to extend an olive branch to the locals who were linked to the House of Godwin, that was probably undercut by Harold's immediate demotion in these very same documents. Because you see, while Harold was described as a king, William was described as a basilius and as the monarch of all of Britain. He was declaring that he was far more than a mere king. He was an imperial power, unlike Harold. It's kind of like when my toddler tells me I can be Spider-Man, and then he immediately declares that he's super extra super Spider-Man who can also fly and always wins all the fights. And as I pointed out, these land grants were backhanded diplomacy at best. Everything William seems to have been doing at this point was reaching out with one hand while smacking the English with the other. And speaking of that style of diplomacy, do you remember that proposed marriage between Earl Edwin and William's daughter? Well, politically, that was a pretty smart move if your goal is to stabilize your grip on the Midlands and the North. The trouble, though, was that Edwin was English, and William and his daughter were Norman, and so were William's close advisors and companions. And as we've spoken about previously, the Normans looked down on the English. They were so antagonistic to the people of the island that if you were Norman but you had some English lands, your peers in court would talk trash about you and derogatorily call you English. Being English was shameful. And Orderick tells us that William's companions 
would not shut up about how ridiculous it was that his daughter was due to marry a dirty, worthless Englishman. And for William, this wasn't a minor matter. We're talking about a king who was unable to control his men even when he was at the height of his power and authority when he was riding around as a general in the field. These knights didn't listen. They just did whatever they wanted, even when they were in the field. And that only got worse when the armies were disbanded and they were tasked with acting as a police force. I mean, even Eustace, one of his commanders, had raised a rebellion against him. And all that was before he proposed marrying his daughter to an Englishman. You got to think of the Norman court as mean girls with swords, which is not the kind of place that you want to show weakness. So I have to imagine that this betrothal was starting to look like a terrible idea. But luckily, as the Chronicle is eager to point out, William had a loose relationship with honor and follow through. So while he was willing to invade a kingdom on the assertion that someone somewhere might have lied, maybe, he was totally comfortable lying himself. And so, again, according to Orderic, William reneged on his promise. Now, to be clear, Orderic is the only source for the betrothal and the subsequent cancellation. But he wasn't writing alone. He was pulling this material from the lost portion of Poitiers. And this in particular seems like a plausible set of events. Adding to this whole picture, at about the same time, Roger of Montgomery was elevated to the Earl of Shrewsbury and he immediately began constructing a castle to help him cement and extend his authority. And it's also likely that it was at around this time that William also stripped some authority from Earl Edwin and gave broad judicial authority in Mercia to Abbot Athelwig of Evesham. And so, rather than seeing his power on the rise through a political marriage to the daughter of a king, instead... Earl Edwin of Mercia was told that the marriage was off, and also that his judicial powers were stripped, and his authority in the western portion of his earldom was now being granted to a Norman lord, and said lord was now constructing a castle and garrisoning it with Norman knights. Which, by now, everyone knew how a castle stuffed with knights would end up treating the English locals. Earl Edwin had seen enough as had his brother and cousin. So they left court and began heading north. And as for Edwin, he reached out to an old family ally, King Blethen of Gwyneth. He'd tried diplomacy, but William didn't play fair. So f*** this. Maybe the Silvatici had the right idea. Maybe it was time to go to the woods. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com and you can join us on Reddit. Reddit still continues to be fun and also Elon Musk isn't trying to charge us eight bucks a month for it. So if you'd like to join us there, you can go to our British podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>